0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Naya Swami Diksha, and this is Naya Swami Gyandev And we welcome all of you. I especially would like to welcome our guests and visitors, those here at Expanding Light who attended the First Timers Weekend, and the Chakras Weekend, those from the meditation retreat, and those who are watching us online. Thank you so much for joining us today. I will start by reading from Rays of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. The topic of this week is Ego, Friend or Foe? Truth is One and Eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus Christ begins his Beatitudes with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit in such a way, As to merit the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean to be poor-spirited. Rather, it means to see oneself as owning nothing. Since all belongs to God. For all is a manifestation of his consciousness. Saint John of the Cross wrote, If you would own everything, seek to own nothing. That which the ego relinquishes, offering it up to soul consciousness, is reclaimed forever in cosmic consciousness. Nothing is ever lost. Paramahansa Yogananda tells the story in Autobiography of a Yogi of the levitating saint Paduri Mahashaya. Master, said a disciple of the saint once ardently, you are wonderful. You have renounced riches and comforts to seek God and teach us wisdom. It was well known that Baduri Mahashaya had forsaken great family wealth in his early childhood when single-mindedly he entered the yogic path. You are reversing the case. The saint's face held mild rebuke. I have left a few paltry rupees, a few petty pleasures for a cosmic empire of endless bliss. How then have I denied myself anything? I know the joy of sharing a treasure. Is that a sacrifice? The short-sighted worldly folk are verily the real renunciates. They relinquish an unparalleled divine possession for a poor handful of earthly toys. The Bhagavad Gita in the third chapter states, All things are everywhere by nature wrought in interaction of the qualities. The fool, cheated by self, thinks, this I did, and that I wrought. But, ah, thou strong-armed prince, a better-lessened mind, knowing the play of visible things within the world of sense, and how the qualities must qualify, Standeth aloof even from his acts. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind.
1: So, spoiler alert to answer the question: ego friend or foe? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, before I get into that, I just wanted to uh, to mention that you know the uh, ego consciousness is essentially a consciousness of limitation. Yet curiously, its expressions in this world seem to be quite unlimited, as you can see by tuning into the news. But there's the flip side of that as well and we see a lot of that in Houston, Texas and we saw a lot of that this week uh, around Ananda Village. Those of you who are here know this but those watching online might not know that on Wednesday afternoon a wildfire began only a couple miles from Ananda Village and caused uh, many, many people to have to evacuate their homes including about half of Ananda Village But uh, fortunately, it was contained through the good works, the great works of over 400 firefighters. And I'd like to just take a moment to really acknowledge their real selfless efforts. They are continuing to fight that fire. It's mostly contained now, but it's not out and uh, it's still only a couple of miles away from Ananda village. So I'd like to send blessings to them. Now all of us now blessings of gratitude, but also blessings of strength to finish the good fight. So let's rub the palms together and send three ohms their way. share with you a reading from Whispers from Eternity, this book of poems and prayer demands by Paramahansa Yogananda. And this one, very relevant to the topic of today, is the demand not to be enslaved by the ego or by ego-centered passivity. I want to use my own will, but guided ever, Father, toward the golden paradise of all fulfillment, for I would be infinity's smiling child, confident of being imprisoned no more behind bars of fruitless desire and withered hopes. I would break the shameful cords of lethargy that have presumed to hold me and step fearlessly into freedom. Released, I now blaze my way through forests of every limitation and delusion, Oh, my little vain ego may strut proudly, saying, Behold my glory, worship me. But I will look through its transparent form and behold thine unimaginable beauty, clothed in the subtle form of the whole universe. The silence-tuned hearing of my soul will ignore that tiny boasting masquerader, my little self impersonating thee. And will listen rapturously to the wind-borne, fragrant music of thine own matchless voice, whispering across the ages. I am He. You know, the the ego is a, a fun topic and a delicate topic also because it touches us so close to home, Uh, and I'd like to start by just sharing briefly, for those of you who haven't really um, addressed this topic from Yogananda's teachings before, he taught that the ego is simply the soul identified with the body. By extension, everything related to the body, identified with the personality, with likes and dislikes, with hopes and fears, with the whole human package that this this is ego, but it's not it 's not that ego is over here, and soul is over there it 's rather that ego is soul in a state of limited awareness of not knowing it 's true. Reality. The way Swami Kriyananda characterized it, is, he said, We're just bundles of self definitions. That we have defined ourselves, we, are, we have identified ourselves with certain characteristics that do apply to this body, to this personality, to this human package. And we all too easily begin to. Identify that as who we are instead of being the ever-free, ever-perfect soul. Obviously, the soul is not quite perfect or it wouldn't be vulnerable to to identifying with these things that it is not. But beyond that, it's perfection. And we take all these little self-definitions, these little identifications, and and they sort of construct a, a fence around us, a fence that that restricts us from experiencing the infinite nature of the self. And some of us have one kind of fence, some of us have another, some of us have brick wall fences, some of us have picket fences, some of us have chicken wire fences, some of us have, you know... Two feet thick blast proof concrete wall sorts of fences, but we all have fences around us as long as we are in this state of not really knowing who we are, and this causes a few difficulties and a lot of these self definitions though they don't uh, they don 't seem to be particularly limiting, right you think well. How about the self-definition of nationality? That's eh, not so limiting. I mean, we're all on the same planet, right? Or the, the self-definition of gender. Okay, a little more delicate, but but really not that big a deal. Self-definition of, you know, having this or that talent. Well, talents are a good thing, right? Why would we think that being any kind of a limitation? Even the limit, you know, the self-definition of being. Left or right-handed? I mean, what's the big deal? But the thing is that as long as they're just sort of, you might say, intellectual definitions, uh, not really visceral connections, uh, they aren't a big deal. They aren't really going to get in our way, particularly like, like Parman uh described when he was asked, you know, having been incarnated many times to come back after achieving his own freedom to come back and help other people he was asked oh what's it like coming back and he said well it's a little like putting on a heavy overcoat on a hot summer day it's uncomfortable at first but then you get used to it and of course that's the problem that we get used to it. We get used to being who we are. We get used to the, the personality. I mentioned something a, a few weeks ago at Spiritual New Week that I'd like to expand upon a little bit because it really flows into this topic. The, the root of personality, the Latin root of personality is the word persona, which originally referred to theatrical masks. And they obviously they helped the actors portray the character that they were portraying. The expression on the mask would be there all the time and the audience could clearly see what, is, what this character is representing. Well, that's all fine and good, except that the masks were originally made out of rather hard substances, like wood, like metal. And you can imagine having a wooden or metal mask on your face, even a plastic one, in this day and age, it wouldn't be all that comfortable. And you, as an actor, you'd always be aware, this is me wearing a mask. This is not any blending of the actor and the character. This is me wearing a mask. It is not me. So somebody came up with the bright idea of... Let's help the actors get into their roles a little more effectively. We'll put padding on the interior of the mask and we'll cover that padding with leather so it will conform to the shape of the actor's face and the actor will have less of a sense of separation from the role the actor can become the character that they're playing. And it will be much more enjoyable for the audience. Well, that's great in the theater, but that's the same thing that's happened to us. That we've gotten comfortable with our personalities. We've got varying degrees of comfort with our bodies, but comfortable with the personalities and with our likes and dislikes and with our hopes and dreams and fears. And we start to lose the sense that we're not those Start to lose the sense of an alternate identity, and if we only got lost in intellectual definitions of being from this country or being of this gender or having, you know being left-handed or right-handed or having these talents, it would be no big deal. But there's a problem, and the problem is that when we're identified with these we tend to like the things that support these identities and we tend to dislike the things that negate those identities. We begin to react emotionally to them. So that if you say something like, well, right-handed people are the only practical people in this world, the right handed people say "So true, so true, and the left handed people are offended and then if you say well the left handed people are the creative ones the left handed people say that 's right, and the right handed people start to make their long list of all the creative people who have been right handed you know we just we just get into essentially defending these self definitions when the whole Name of the game on a spiritual path is to get beyond the self definition. So, I want to read to you a brief section from a, a talk by Parman Yogananda where he, he spoke to this. On the, topic, the talk was entitled How Feelings Mask the Soul. If at this moment you could completely calm your body, your thoughts, and your emotions you would instantly become aware of your true self, the soul, and of your great body of the universe throbbing with the joy of God. Does that sound like anything you know? Calm your body, your thoughts, your emotions, meditation. He goes on to say, your real nature is calmness. You have put on a mask of restlessness. Restlessness. The agitated state of your consciousness resulting from the stimuli of feelings. You are not that mask. You are pure, calm spirit. It is time you remember who you are, the blessed soul, the reflection of spirit. Take off the mask of feelings. Face your higher self. So this state of calmness that the master is talking about is not just calmness of the mind, but calmness of the heart. You know, Swami Kriyananda said an interesting thing about meditation. He's, he said, people talk about the importance of calming the mind for meditation. He said, although that's true, it's not the main thing. It's not the main thing. He says, For it's the agitations of the heart that agitate the mind. The main thing you have to do for successful meditation is to calm the heart, calm those feelings, those reactions to life in order to get into that place where, as the Master said, you you completely calm your body, your thoughts, and your emotions. That's why meditation is... So it's not as just a matter of kind of sorting out our thoughts, sorting out a mind, but getting to that deeper, visceral level where we start to get our arms around our reactions to life and to, to start to hold back from getting just overwhelmed by the little things that happen to us. That's why the practice of becoming aware of the energy in the spine is so valuable because every time we react positively energy rises in the center of the torso just in front of the physical spine, the astral spine. Every time we react negatively energy descends just as a, as a consequence of our mental, emotional reactions. And yet, one of the bases for the whole science of yoga is that by taking charge of that which is less essential to who we are, in this case the energy, we can affect that which is more essential to who we are, to who we are which is consciousness. By beginning to exert control over the energy in the spine, we can stop that reactive process. And some people will say, well, I don't, That I want to stop that reactive process. I like those ups and downs. It adds spice to life. Yes, it adds spice to life, and a lot of pain and suffering, also. And they think, but they say, "Well, but if I don't have these likes and dislikes, then I'm just going to be like a zombie. I'll be like a walking, walking dead person." Anugananda said, no. He said, you'll be more alive than you are now because you're not going to have your happiness under the control of anything outside yourself. You'll be fine if it happens. You'll be fine if it doesn't. It just won't matter anymore. And so this is the guru's job to help to get us out of those self identifications that we give we give to them control over our happiness and get out of that fenced enclosure. I remember a story of, of Yogananda who was not a tall person. He was probably, I don't know, five six or five seven, something like that. Um, speaking to one of his disciples, Norman Paulson, who's this big Bear of a man, probably six foot five or six foot six, something like that. And Yogananda looked at him and said, "Come out of that body, come out." <laughs> I think it's a little ridiculous on on the one, hand, but that's you know that's the masters see it as that easy because they've done it. They've acquired the ability through a lot of hard work to get out of that consciousness of being in the body even though physically they may be in that body. But that's, that's the job that's in, in front of us to to begin to sever those attachments that keep us identified. This is what the masters do. It's a story from, from Yogananda's early life before he came to this country when he was uh, uh, still in Calcutta with his guru and... His father gave him a motorcycle sidecar with a sidecar and back in those days that was the that was the early part of the 1900s go anywhere in the world it was a pretty big thing to have a motorcycle with a sidecar not to not to speak of having it in India and he loved that sidecar Love the motorcycle, and he would give his guru rides in the in the, the sidecar. It was quite a scene: these two swamis uh, driving around at high speed in in a sidecar. And you uh, to understand one time to his guru, Sri Teshwar, second from the right on the on the altar. He said, "Am I attached to it?" And Sri Yukteswar, who could of course read his disciple's thoughts, he knew. Absolutely, whether Yogananda is attached to it. He said, certainly not. And not long after that, um, Yogananda went to, to visit his family home and parked the motorcycle out in front of his father's house and went in. When he came out again, there was a, a, an acquaintance, not a really a dear friend, but an acquaintance looking at the motorcycle with a great deal of admiration. Yogananda said, It's beautiful, isn't it? And the man said, Oh, it certainly is. If only I could have one like this. Yogananda said, Take it. It's yours. And the man said, Well, what? How much do you want for it? Yogananda said, I don't want anything for it. I want to give it to you. Seeing how much you would like it, I couldn't even enjoy having it myself anymore. Just stay here for a moment. I'll go back inside and get the ownership papers. He came back and he gave the motorcycle to to this man whom he barely knew, and he, he just said he's, the way he told it is he prayed to Divine Mother. afterwards. he says, Divine Mother, I can't I can't imagine holding on to anything that is thine anyway when I see it in the when I see the desire for it in the hearts of your other children. And Yogananda also spoke about Sri Yukteswar. As you can imagine, Sri Yukteswar being the guru, people would often bring him presents, fine gifts. And Sri Teshwar would receive them gratefully and take very good care of them as the custodian of these gifts. But when they broke, Yogananda said Sri Yukteswar laughed. He would say, my care is gone. It has taken so much of my attention. It wasn't like he was attached to having it or attached to not having it. It was that it came to him from God. Therefore, he would take care of it, but without the least bit of attachment. And when it moved on in whatever way, whether through giving it away or through it becoming broken, he was free. You know, we have, uh, some years ago here in the community, we had a little transition in the way we did things. We gave all the homes their own names. Uh, there was the cluster that I live in, uh, all, all the homes have names of flowers. We live in the gardenia house. And there was another cluster where all the homes have names of saints. And another cluster where all the homes have Italian names, uh, Villa Gioia, Villa Luce, Villa Rosa. And the idea was being, let's not call this so-and-so's house, let's just call this the Gardenia house or Villa Luce, and uh, as a way to, to not get attached to our dwellings, and it was a good idea. Not that many of us remember the names of very many homes, but I remember asking one of my friends at that time. This was this was Nayaswami Haridas, who is now in the center leader in India. Anand, I said, so what do you what are you and your wife are going to call your home? He said, we're going to call it my house.
0: <laughs>
1: but you know, the place where, one of the places where we meet up with these, these identifications the most is in our meditation. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've been revising the, uh, one of the sections of the uh, meditation teacher training manual. We have the, the online version of meditation teacher training starts tomorrow. And uh, I was particularly revising the part we, we call the being there stage of meditation. There's the getting there stage and there's the being there stage. The getting there is the techniques. Whether it's Hongsa or Kriya, the getting there is the techniques portion of the practice. The being there is the time spent sitting in stillness, in the silence, without technique. And you know, in that time where we're sitting, you know, we've done something that has gone before, whether it's Kriya or Hongsa or any other meditation technique. You've done something that has gone before. You've gotten to a place where, ideally, you can have some perception of one or another divine quality. Maybe peace, especially if it's Hongsa, or joy, especially if it's Kriya. But you have that perception of it. You have that sense of, I'm enjoying, let's say, peace. I'm enjoying this peace. What's happening then is that we're still in ego consciousness because there is I and there is peace. We're still in the medulla oblongata, at the base of the brain, the center of ego, in the body. That peace is not in the medalla oblongata. That peace is at the spiritual eye. And it's like we're looking at this movie screen of peace. We're enjoying the movie, but we're not in the movie. That's why in this being there stage of meditation, yes, okay, we, we were doing something, get there, we are enjoying this peace, but now it's time to take another step. Is taken a step of moving forward that short distance through the brain to where we give up that sense of I am enjoying this peace and we simply become that peace. This is really the art of meditation because there's no technique to it. There's no... No one can show you how to do it but this is really the essence of it. It's not the practice of the techniques. The practice of the techniques are all to take us to that place where we can do the real meditation. Where we can go beyond enjoying this or that divine aspect and have the experience of becoming this or that divine aspect. And it can be a little scary in some cases not because peace or joy or scary, but simply because that idea of becoming it rather than being our familiar thoughts and feelings and all that, it's, it represents the great unknown. And in a way, the spiritual path is about taking that step into the unknown. Yogananda said, most people don't advance spiritually because they lack a sense of spiritual adventurousness. That willingness to step into what we don't know. Because when we do step into that, we don't lose anything except limitation, except the sense of of separateness except that, that annoying, lingering sense of incompleteness, that sense that makes the ego a friend at first because it, it spurs us to seek more, but ultimately the ego will hold back from that because it's, it's, it's afraid it will be extinguished afraid it will cease to exist altogether. And that's the, the fundamental delusion that we all face is that we think that there will be a loss by going into God. Intellectually, we don't think so, but when we get to the verge of it, we're afraid, because it's the unknown. It's a lot easier to cling to the pain we know than to go into the unknown. And Aswami Swami Kriyananda would say, we come to the brink of that perhaps many times before we find, and, and, and every time pulling back. Nope. Too scary. Too big. Until we finally just get accustomed enough to the possibility and hungry enough for the actuality that we finally take that step and go into the experience of ourselves without the fence around us. With whatever fence there was just becomes irrelevant. And I know many of us have had that experience perhaps only once, perhaps many times or perhaps not at all, but it's coming. And the way it's coming is to go into that being there stage of meditation and to be willing to take that short little step, shorter than the length of one of your feet, from the medalla oblongata to the spiritual eye, and go into the experience of what we really are. May we all take that step together.